This is the Ingenuity Podcast. Now, the real downside of this make-to-stock manufacturing philosophy, as you can imagine, is that if I want to make something different, I'm more or less screwed. The, the products I'm making, the, the process um, by which I make my products is hard-coded in the metal and automation software inside the factory. Yeah? The way that the car flows through the factory is determined by the way that the factory is set up. This is called tooling. A typical factory maybe has half a billion dollars of worth of tooling inside, which is why car manufacturers make the same car for what well, used to be a decade that number's come down somewhat but it means if they want to pivot from saloons to SUVs from SUVs to electri- electrified vehicles electric vehicles then you know they're in real trouble they really have to build another factory or massively overhaul uh, uh, an existing factory and they just can't afford to do that because they need to amortize the cost of all that tooling over many many years of efficient production There is a flip side to this make-to-stock philosophy, and that's called engineer-to-order. It's really exactly the opposite. Instead of making a lot of the same thing, you're really only making one according to a specific customer specifications. Think of an aircraft, think of a specialized earth mover. Now, clearly, there are templates here. One Boeing 777s, very similar to another one. But actually, um, the interior of the aircraft, um, many of the systems, these are all engineered specifically for a single customer application. The upside of this, of course, prioritizing flexibility um, is that you sacrifice efficiency. And in fact, um, taking Boeing as an example, like Airbus, like actually all of the large aerospace OEMs, they have very long backlogs, eight to 10 years of waiting time if you want a, a, a new aircraft. And so you'd think from the way I described it, that manufacturers really were trapped between one of these two choices fast and rigid production or flexible but slow production and that's really what transpires that's happened and every time I go and meet a customer I find they fall into one of those two camps and the interesting thing is that for 60 or 70 years both of those philosophies within their own particular niche have proven incredibly effective but now in a world 
of personalization in a world where mass customization is the goal, neither of those philosophies really work anymore. Both of these companies, types of companies, are trapped in their own paradigm. They've painted themselves into a corner. And what's interesting is that they're both trying to inject something of the other philosophy into their own operations. So you go and speak to an automotive company, it's making tens of thousands of cars a year, and all they want is a bit of flexibility. Go and speak to an aerospace company, one that has optimized their engineering to the point of, you know, to the point, as we've discussed in previous uh, podcasts, that they're able to use generative design and simulation to automatically uh, create aircraft designs, validate them before ever building them. Incredibly efficient engineering processes. But then they build all these damn things by hand, very, very slow rates. And all they want is to automate their factories. They want to make them more efficient. And so what they're really doing is looking to converge on a common manufacturing philosophy, an efficient, automated, but flexible production paradigm. Now, if you're looking for an analogy, and I know, I know you are, then I would say that this um, efficient, inflexible, fully automated production is pretty much like choosing to take a train to go from A to B. First of all, there have to be tracks to go from A to B, so you have to be lucky. Um, if that's your journey, and that's the only journey you're taking, and you get a season ticket, then it's usually the most efficient way of, of, of going. You want to go somewhere else, and you're really out of luck. And so... Um, the personalized car, the car ownership, really came about in order to give people freedom to go wherever they wanted. That's very much like engine into order. Of course, if you go on the roads today, they're incredibly congested. That's because most cars have one person in them. So it's an incredibly inefficient way of getting from getting a large number of people from one place to another. But of course, it has you know this concept of freedom. And I think we can stay in this analogy as we try and identify what converging on a common paradigm might mean. And the mode of transport that I'm choosing here is going to be Uber. It's it's really offering, let's say, the best of both worlds. So I have the freedom to go wherever I want uh, without the need to own my own car. That Uber car is, is going to be doing many times more miles every year than you or I would normally do. Uh, okay, unless I'm using Uber Pool, um, I may be alone in a car, but as soon as I get out of it, it's off doing another job. So it's kind of, it, it's offering flexibility to me and efficiency in terms of resource utilization, the total number of miles driven. Now, manufacturers who've spent decades specializing in their respective niches are often surprised to hear that we actually have a plan to solve their problems. And that plan is based around the idea of Industry 4.0. And for those who maybe didn't hear the pilot episode of the podcast, Industry 4.0, this was born in, out of Germany in the mid-2000s uh, in an attempt to protect and enhance Germany's reliance on uh, manufacturing for their GDP. Um, of course, with 35% of their GDP coming from industry, they were really interested in avoiding that this, all of this business, all of these jobs went to China, to the Far East, to low-cost countries. And the idea of the four in 4.0 is that it signifies a fourth industrial revolution. First industrial revolution being the advent of steam engines, steam power and industry. This was replacing human 
Muscle with steam power led to a massive revolution, huge leap in productivity, and by the way, a huge jump forward in uh, for society. Second industrial revolution based around electrical power. This came a hundred years later in the late 1800s. This really replaced steam power with a far more scalable approach, by the way, combined with uh, the, the concept of industrial production lines and new logistics concepts made for a far more efficient production facility. Another huge leap forward in productivity. And the third one was around industrial automation. I alluded to that earlier in this podcast. And so uh, Industry 4.0, the fourth industrial revolution, this is the concept of applying massive computer power to industry, sparking the same kind of revolution that we've seen in, in banking, in media, in, in social interaction, but applied to industry. And the basic idea of Industry 4.0 is not difficult. Um, it foresees distributed computing power applied to machines, individual machines, rendering them intelligent and autonomous, aware of their own capabilities, their own status, responsible for their own planning, aware of their own costs, but at the same time ensuring that products, maybe individually personalized designed products, understand their own unique configurations. And Industry 4.0 is all about the conversation between smart products and smart automation, allowing products and machines to collaborate to get manufacturing done in a highly efficient but personalized way. And described like that, I think you'll understand that this would be an answer both for automotive type markets who are looking for additional flexibility driven by this completely personalized uh, and unplanned conversation between not just smaller numbers of cars, but completely unique vehicles and production capacity, as well as being a huge leap forward for engineer to order type manufacturing, because it would allow robots and machines to be introduced in the place of people whilst maintaining that flexibility that human labor tends to lend to industry. Aha, you say, nice idea. It's all science fiction though. Well, the truth is that these things do exist. I, I'm privileged to visit Siemens corporate technology labs. And here I've seen the most incredible autonomous uh, demonstrations, self-organizing systems. Maybe one of the most powerful ones I've seen are a couple of robots. Uh, now, robots typically have to be programmed. So for a fixed task, uh, in the past, you still actually physically program those. More recently, simulation was used in order to program them. So you simulated a task and derived the robotic programming from those simulations. That's a very powerful concept, but of course it does require that the simulations are performed for each potential action that a ro robot has to take. And that leaves the entire system relatively fragile. If something untoward happens, if something unpredictable or unpredicted occurs, then, you know, everything grinds to a halt and humans have to be brought back in again. Well, with these new completely autonomous systems, the robots themselves have a number of interesting characteristics. First of all, they are able to see, so they have cameras on board. Second characteristic is that they are aware of themselves and their surroundings. In the case of the particular demonstration I'm thinking of, two robotic arms were able to sense each other, and understand their relationship to each other. And the way they did this is to be connected in real time to a digital twin of themselves, their partner, and their entire environment. So they're able to see and then refer back to this image of the world, which is 
actually incredibly close, I think, to the way humans operate. The third characteristic is that capability is to directly be able to interpret product configurations. And so if a, if a part or a subassembly of a machine exposes its configuration in what's called an ontology, that's a relationship diagram, then the robots are able to directly read this interpret it, look around at the partially assembled product, look at the bins of raw materials, and then use their fourth capability, which is a kind of artificial intelligence to be able to communicate between themselves and perform real-time path planning. That's the job of the typical robotic programmer, but done in real time and adapting to any changes in raw material raw material layout, availability, um, or the job at hand. And so it's not surprising that manufacturers from both camps see this as a really interesting solution to their problems, um, injecting a degree of flexibility into the otherwise efficient manufacturing processes of, say, the automotive market, and allowing engineer-to-order companies to automate their processes to become more efficient. So there's a couple of reasons why we can't just apply this te- technology across the board, solve all our problems. The first is a question of timing. These autonomous, independently intelligent machines really aren't available yet and won't be for quite some time. The second is a question of cost. If you look at uh, the average US manufacturing facility, the equipment in there is 35 years old. And so we're not talking about incremental upgrades here. We're not talking about maybe you know, pushing out a, a software change to semi-intelligent equipment. We're talking about a complete rewrite of the manufacturing footprint across the majority of the world's manufacturing facilities. Again, using the US as an example, um, this, this, this would cost trillions of dollars. Now, fortunately, all is not lost. One of the great things about intelligence is it tends to be coded in software. There's no real reason why it has to be embedded in the hardware of a machine. And that provides us with a degree of flexibility to uh, digitally augment existing infrastructure. Um, And it also provides us with the possibility to create what we like to call a transition technology um, that would allow manufacturers with huge investments in existing equipment and systems to gradually migrate over the next two decades towards this fully industry 4.0 paradigm. Okay, so how do we do this? Well, for anyone who's heard me talk about digital manufacturing in the past, you'll know that we're very lucky to have been able to create both for the product and for production resources, that's machines, robots, and people, and logistics, a digital twin or a copy of that resource in the virtual world. A representation, in the case of the product, of its bill of materials, bill of process, it's that kind of manufacturing blueprint, its complete configuration, the relationship between its parts, its its tolerances, its, its quality requirements. And on the manufacturing resource side, each one of our resources in the virtual world, the digital twins, they actually have a complete understanding of their capabilities, their costs, their schedule, their maintenance status, 
how they are connected to each other. And, you know, that's all we need for an Industry 4.0 scenario. They just happen to be sitting in the virtual world and not the real one. That's actually a huge advantage for us, especially in this uh, transitional phase. So what we do is we broker a conversation between the digital twin of the product and the digital twin of the manufacturing resources, the digital twin production, we call it. The same kind of real-time conversation that uh, will take place in a couple of decades between truly smart products and truly autonomous, intelligent automation. But we do it in software. And then we connect the real product to its digital twin using RFID or a QR code. It's a very simple connection. It just basically says, this is who I am and this is where I am. The real product doesn't have to know anything else. It doesn't have to know what it is, why it exists, what its specification is, because all that information is being delegated to the digital twin for processing. And on the um, resource side, the equipment side, we've connected the digital twin to the real world via OPC or whichever protocol the equipment is capable of supporting. So if it's a you know ancient serial protocol, that's okay. The amount of information we have to send and receive is actually pretty minimal because again, all the smarts, all of the high velocity interaction, machine to machine and machine to equipment is done at this digital twin level. Now there's actually a lot of work going on at the moment, a lot of research uh, around the algorithms used for the conversations between the smart products and the smart resources. Again, once they're defined, we can leverage them at the software level. We'd have to wait for this technology to be embedded in the hardware. While we're waiting, we've actually chosen a quite pragmatic approach for the brokering of these conversations. And rather than allow these different actors to carry out a completely autonomous conversation, we've decided to hold a guided conversation. And the guide, let's say the blueprint for that conversation, is what we call the bill of process. Now, I think, again, in the pilot episode, we talked about briefly about the bill of process. This is essentially the recipe for production of of, of a particular product. All the steps that it needs to go through for production, those are the manufacturing steps, the assembly steps, all chained together into a a kind of process or sequence. Each step in that sequence uh, names the materials involved, the, the tolerances involved, any tools involved, and quite critically, um, it it says something about the resources required to perform that manufacturing action. Okay, so now we've got products which have to be made. They are they they have their own digital twin that understands everything about them. We have production resources, machines, robots, people. Uh, they each have their own digital twin that exposes their capabilities. We have a bill of process for each product which is the guide used to broker the conversation between the digital twin of the product and the digital twin of the resources. Um, We need a factory capable of moving products around between resources in a flexible way. So if you have an environment with fixed lines, fixed routes, um, I mean physically fixed, then no amount of software is actually going to uh, help you. So you either need uh, smart conveyors or you need AGVs to move the product around. Now, here's how it works. Production capacity opens up on the shop floor. Our vehicle 
for moving products around. So it's either a carrier on a smart conveyor or it's an AGV, moves into position and calls out to the digital twin of the product, hey, what do I do? Digital twin of the product that has already published its bill of process to the industry 4.0 a conversation engine, which we call production flow control engine. And the conversation that takes place is what's called capability matching. So the, the product basically says, look, first step, someone needs to drill a hole in me. Um, anyone capable of drilling? And basically all the digital twins receive this request. They get together. They say, okay, you know, there's, we got 20 machines, 20 robots, 20 people. Uh, how many of us are capable of this drilling? And of course, this is defined inside the capability uh, um, definition of the digital of their digital twins. And so it's uh, um, easy for them to eliminate any of the resources incapable of performing that basic function. And then we need to filter further because the product's going to be saying, "Look, I need a four mil hole." Um, and uh, clearly not all of those resources that are capable of drilling can drill a four mil hole. We have to check the tools um, uh, that they have. And so we'll, we'll knock out a few more resources. So now we've got a bunch of resources, maybe three machines, a couple of robots and a person. They're all capable of doing this job to the specification requested by the product. Which one's the best? Well, here's where they get amongst themselves again and order themselves by goodness. For example, they may say, okay, let's order ourselves by who costs the most. Uh, let's order ourselves by availability. Let's order ourselves by how far away we are. So how far the journey, the logistics journey will be in order to um, put the product together with us. Let's order ourselves by the availability of the raw materials we may need for this operation. You know, if they're, if they're already in a buffer, beside a couple of the resources, then they'd obviously have priority. And this kind of ordering function is typically uh, not not an or, 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 but it's an and, and, and. So um, we end up with the best um, by mixing together these these various functions. And um, and finally, we end up, we, we allocate what may be a robot. Um, the product is then routed to that robot by the logistic system, maybe by an AGV or by the smart conveyor. That's called a mission. So we dispatch a mission to the logistic system. The product arrives at the this robot. The production flow control engine then sends down the instructions to that robot through its digital twin. In this case, it may be some G-code to the robot. If it was a machine, it may be set points. If it was a a CNC, a numerical control machine, then maybe we're, we're talking a part program. If it's a person, it's an electronic work instruction and uh, the operation is triggered. Once the job's done and confirmed, then the production flow control engine is probably going to um, publish the results to an MES, a manufacturing execution system that's keeping track of what's going on, keeping track of the cost, keeping track of machine utilization, of part utilization, and the product will go, okay, now my, now for my next step. And so if you can imagine a factory with a hundred products in it, each one is on its own individual journey through that factory, powered by its own bill of process, managed by the production flow control engine that's using the bill of process as the guide 
to this Industry 4.0 conversation that's all happening in the virtual world and connected with reality through legacy interfaces. That's where your flexibility comes from. This is how we're injecting flexibility into an otherwise pretty ordinary factory. Now, maybe in three, five, eight years, that robot you were using, that pretty ordinary robot, is up for replacement and technology's caught up with us. And so um, the robot you're going to buy actually has embedded intelligence and autonomy. So what happens to our overall concept? Well, absolutely nothing. We not only unplug the old robot, we also unplug its digital twin. We plug in this product, which essentially has its own embedded digital twin on board. And it's able to communicate directly with the production flow control engine without the use of a digital twin. And so we're not only able to transition from manual operations to classic automation in this way, whilst maintaining flexibility, which is great for an aerospace market, we're also able to manage the transition, the eventual transition from this digital twin enhanced flexible production to a fully autonomous, true industry 4.0 operation. Now to fully appreciate the benefit of this, you really have to think about introducing a new product. Now we have customers who have to perform 2,638 manual interventions if they want to substitute one material for a for another material in a in a product in a product definition that's insane what happens if we want to introduce a completely new product it's going to take an awful long time it's going to be an intensely manual process mistakes are going to be made and anything done in the headquarters is going to have to be replicated multiple times for the different plant layouts and facility well not with this approach the bill of materials is used to generate the bill of process here we're using generative design again, as discussed before. It's validated in the virtual world using simulation. Simulation not for, you know, not a generic plant, but a specific simulation for each one of the target facilities. A bill of process is then published into the production flow control engine just in time for an order being produced. And that product will make its way through the production facility and out the other end, made perfect first time. And maybe that product configuration will never be made again. Now that is a level of both product quality, efficiency and flexibility that's really unheard of. The other great thing is that this technique is extremely um, in, in, vertical independent, industry independent. As I've been dis describing this, any of you with a, a process background may have been saying, well, hold on a minute, He's, this is really just a giant batch engine. And in many ways, that's true. We, we took a degree of inspiration from batch industries. The big difference here is that instead of the batch being managed by a large central engine, which doesn't scale, here our production flow control engines are distributed. This is very similar to the transition from the first to the second industrial revolution, where we went from a giant steam engine powering all operations to a highly distributed set of small electrical motors. And here, each element of or each section of production is delegated to a different Siemens edge box, capable of coordinating resources for that portion of the journey of the product through the, through the factory. Now, if you remember, I used Uber as an example, as an analogy for an interesting balance between the complete autonomy you get with uh, your own car 
and sitting on a train between two fixed points. And really, if you're having trouble visualizing what's going on in a factory driven by production flow control, then think of think of Uber again. Think of that Uber map with little Uber cars driving around of it. Think of each product as it flows through the factory, being a person calling out to Uber, asking to go on a journey. Think of the production flow control engine as the Uber server, finding the best car or resource for the job, routing that resource to the product. Think you can begin to have a feeling as you picture all of these cars driving around the city, each one on its own independent journey, dropping people off, going on to do another job. You can start understand where this flexibility comes from and how interesting it is as a, as a concept. All right, well, time has flown by, for me at least. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it was understandable. And um, I'll see you next time on Alistair's Ingenuity Podcast. Bye-bye.